Welcome to the British History Podcast. My name is Jamie, and this is episode 18, Abandonment and Reoccupation. This show is free and independent due to member support. And as thanks for helping keep the community going, I offer members-only content, including extra episodes and rough transcripts. If you're interested in supporting the show and helping us out, you can do so over at thebritishhistorypodcast.com. And thank you very much to Leon, Mark, and Nathan for contributing already. Wait, this feels a little bit more epic than usual. Perhaps that's because this week we're going to be talking about Marcus Aurelius. And you know what that means? Yes! Shameless gladiator references. Are you not entertained? Are you not entertained? (laughs) This episode is going to be awesome! Alright, but I should probably start actually, you know doing this seriously. So, when we last left off, Antonius had completed his push north. Well, his generals had. And he was building his wall. The Caledonians were a bit cheesed off at this, and then I suddenly and rudely stopped the podcast. So let's pick up where we left off. So the building phase along the Antonine Wall stretched from about 142 to 154. During this period, there were a number of officers who organized the building. There was Cornelius Prescinianus, there was Papirius Aelianus, a bunch of them. The point is, it was built. Meanwhile, the unconquered Caledonians to the north repeatedly made attacks. We can assume that these attacks were more ferocious than anticipated due to the fact that the number of forts rapidly increased during the construction of the wall. Suddenly you had forts everywhere. But they kept on building and uh, continued until 154 AD. And then something happened around that period. And we don't have a clear picture of what it was. It must have been militaristic, since coins were struck to commemorate the event, and the increased legionary presence was even felt at Newcastle. By now the Ninth was probably already destroyed, but who knows? Maybe this mysterious event that we don't know what happened, and the mystery of the Ninth, maybe they collided here. Maybe it was the Ninth. We just don't know. It's made even more intriguing by what followed. First, there's an inscription at Newcastle-upon-Tyne, which records the arrival of reinforcements for all three legions from the armies of Upper and Lower Germany, under a new governor, Julius Verus. While we don't know the exact date of his arrival, we know he was still in office in 158, which means that he was there for the abandonment of the wall. Yep, that wall they spent 12 years building was abandoned. And archaeological finds and records of legionary movements indicate that the Antonine Wall was probably abandoned in 157 or 158. And this was the same time that the 6th Legion returned to Hadrian's Wall, 100 miles to the south, and began to rebuild and repair it. During this period, it's likely that substantial tracts of land around Hadrian's Wall were taken back to military occupation, and the garrisons at the Pennines were refurbished. The repairs and refurbishments were not to the same level of Hadrian's reign. There was no splendor to be found here, only simple military effectiveness. They weren't building a wonder this time. They were building a defensive platform. It sounds serious. A withdrawal a hundred miles south, rebuilding the wall that had essentially been demilitarized. 
This wasn't a minor event. Something serious must have happened. Probably involving those nutty northerners. Unfortunately, we don't have a record of what it was. But you've been listening to me long enough to know that I'm going to make a few guesses. I don't think it was due to troop restrictions. Since Hadrian's Wall was larger and required more men than the Antonine Wall. It just doesn't seem likely to me that this was a matter of withdrawing to a more defensible location due to either losses or transfers. Hadrian's Wall wasn't more defensible due to its size. It would actually be a lot harder to hold. This sounds to me more like a serious defeat where the Romans were forced to pull out of the territory in order to secure peace. It's theorized that Governor Julius Verus's withdrawal to Hadrian's Wall was not exactly popular with the emperor. After all, that was one of his great military achievements. In fact, that was his only great military achievement, and now it was all lost. But here's the thing. It's hard to believe that the governor would have abandoned the wall without any imperial authority. The most likely situation here would be that Antoninus only reluctantly agreed to abandonment. And he would have agreed to it probably just to secure peace with a group of people that he didn't have the military to deal with. But that peace wasn't destined to last. And the withdrawal was more of a short interruption. By around 160, the Romans were once again surging forth and reoccupied the Antonine Wall, rebuilding it. But their stay would be brief. In 161, Emperor Antoninus died of a fever. And in the end, Antoninus, who was supposed to only hold the position for a short while while Marcus Aurelius came of age, had the longest reign since Augustus. And now there was to be a new emperor. Well, actually, there were two. But for all intents and purposes, the real emperor was Marcus Aurelius. The other one was Lucius Verus. Not Julius Verus, who was the governor of Britannia, but Lucius Verus. This was due to Hadrian's demand of Antoninus that he also adopt Lucius Verus. This seemed to be more like the heir and a spare kind of deal. Verus wasn't really Hadrian's first pick. Marcus was. But you needed to be sure that there'd be someone there in case Marcus died at a young age. So let's handle Verus really quickly and then get into the Aurelian stuff. Verus was essentially the lesser of the two emperors. He was a fan of neckbeards, and he also had a fairly significant afro. Somehow I don't think that neckbeards and afros will come back into fashion, but, you know, Varus was doing a pretty good job of rocking it. So anyways, so Antoninus is dead. The emperor now has two emperors, and one of them is widely known for being a philosopher. And no, that emperor was not the neckbeard. It was actually Marcus Aurelius. He was known for his meditations and was a devoted disciple of Stoicism, which required service to the state and a withdrawal into the self. But here's the thing about being an emperor. You don't really have the time nor the luxury to hold yourself to philosophical ideas, and certainly you don't have the time just to withdraw into yourself and, you know, think about how you can make the state a better place. You have to be out there and doing stuff. So he might have been passionate about philosophy, but the problem here is that emperors of Rome were typically continuously at war, and Marcus's reign was definitely no exception. Antoninus was lucky. He had an empire that was relatively at peace. Marcus didn't get that freebie. 
Following the death of Antoninus, the Rhine and the Danube frontiers that had been relatively peaceful exploded into violence. And though Marcus could not have known this, those wars were the heralds of a crisis that would last for over a century and transform the empire. But back to the story. Marcus was facing a war in Germania, a war in Parthia, and I'm fairly certain that he also had a war in Caledonia. There just weren't enough soldiers to go around, and something would have to give. And these weren't minor wars. These were massive military attacks. In fact, later on, the Germans would actually manage to penetrate Italy. It just wasn't reasonable to have an enormous military concentration to hem in a tribe of barbarians who inhabited an island that could never seriously threaten Italy when there were tribes across the Danube who were looking towards invasion of Italy proper. That isn't to say that Britannia wasn't a big deal, or that it was unimportant. It was, and it was definitely a problem for Rome. Take Statius Priscius, for example. He was a governor who was known for handling troublesome and rebellious provinces. And following the death of Antoninus, he became governor of Britannia, and remained so until 163 when he was needed in another territory that was also in the midst of an emergency. And that suggests to me that Britannia was indeed one of the many problems that Aurelius faced at the outset of his reign. It also suggests that the mood in Rome was that, regardless of how troubling the situation in Britannia was, it was way worse, and also more dangerous to Rome itself, elsewhere. Rome needed troops, and there were a lot of troops along the wall. And besides, this wasn't the Aurelian Wall, it was the Antonine Wall. Marcus didn't have any personal involvement in building it, nor did he have any involvement in Hadrian's Wall. And he needed those troops on the continent. What good is it to have a well-defended Roman wall in Britannia if Rome falls to the barbarians? So Marcus decided to abandon the Antonine Wall. Hadrian's Wall would become the border for Roman Britannia. Roman ambitions for Scotland were over. Hadrian's Wall was repaired and rebuilt. Gates were reinstalled, posts were remanned, the military way was built and linked with existing roads much in the same way that the Antonine Wall had its military way, and we begin to see an increase in permanent settlements within the boundaries of the Vallum and near the forts. It seems that the Vallum was no longer acting as a demilitarized zone. There was a gradual sprawl of settlements that sometimes overtook the Vallum, in fact, and we began to see that the area became much more civilian-friendly in general. That isn't to say that there was no military along the wall. To the contrary, there was still a massive garrison, but the prescription against building within the Vallum was being loosened, and civilians were beginning to play a larger role near the wall. But that makes sense when you think about it. A standing garrison of 30,000 soldiers has a lot of needs. 10,000 tons of wheat a year, food animals, pack animals, horses, arms, armor, clothing, tools, leather, tents, stone, metal, the list goes on and on. So while there may have been tension between the Romans and the Britons, while there might be outright war, wherever there's money to be made, you'll find people willing to swallow their principles and cash in. And Britannia was no exception. And there was certainly a lot of money to be made there. 
Over time, we start to see specialized centers that would do equipment repair and whatnot, and there was plenty of money to be made in local cottage industries, such as tanneries and blacksmithing. But where were the legions getting their money? Well, in addition to resupplies from the empire, the legions typically levied taxes upon the province that they occupied. While those taxes were normally paid in coin, it's also possible that the locals were allowed to pay their taxes in goods or even in manpower. So legionary force were large concentrations of wealth in the region, and both the legions and the legionaries were ripe targets for trade, and many merchants jumped at the opportunity. And it wasn't just merchants and brothels that were popping up close to the wall and within the vallum. There were also homes, and where there are concentrations of people, you're going to start seeing religious buildings appear as well. We have found temples near the wall dedicated to the native gods and spirits, such as Coventina, Cochitius, Belatucadras, Antinokitowic, and Mogons. And Mogons, for the members, was the god that we talked about in the Members Only podcast. And it wasn't just native gods and spirits. I mean, there are also temples to eastern cults, such as the cult of Mithras. And here's the fun part of these finds. They're weighted to Roman records and whatnot, meaning that it was the Romans who were paying respect to native gods and spirits. We actually know very little about how the Britons fit into the worship, but it seems that even in the 2nd century AD, Britannia was becoming something of a trendsetter. Anyway, while Rome was pulling back, they certainly weren't going quietly. An inscription from the 6th Legion indicates that they were engaged in a successful campaign beyond the frontier. And this is in keeping with Aurelian behavior. While Hadrian had changed the culture of Rome to one of defense along the frontiers, and Antoninus followed in his footsteps, Marcus Aurelius walked to the beat of a different drum. And that drum would have sounded quite good to Trajan, probably. Marcus Aurelius followed the traditional Roman approach to frontiers, the more bloody approach. But in general, that was reserved for the continent. So for once... Britain was getting a little bit of a reprieve. So by 163, the Antonine Wall was fully abandoned. Though not all of Scotland was abandoned, it seemed that a few forts, such as Newstead, would continue to be held for another 20 years or so. So by around 166, the governor of Britannia was recalled to Rome, and we know nothing about the governors and very little about Britannia for the next decade. But that's not too surprising. The Empire didn't have much time to devote to Britannia, what with all the continental wars and whatnot. I mean, you have co-emperor Varus campaigning in the east from 163 to 166, and then coming back to the west with his troops and bringing the plague with him, so nice job there. And that tour through Europe for about a year from 166 to 167, not to mention in 166... The Germans crushed the Danube frontier and reached Italy, and of course said, Now, the Germans were eventually pushed out, but then Co-Emperor Varus died in 169, so it was just all kinds of crisis in a kind of non-stop fashion. At the same time, there was also the threat of war in Britannia, but we don't know much about it other than Britannia got a new governor about a year later. Meanwhile, in the east, there were troop revolts, renewed German aggression, and by 177, things were so bad along the Danube that Marcus Aurelius headed out to handle the situation himself. 
That's why we don't know much about what was going on in Britannia. The Empire was falling down around his ears. It was just going mad. And so he had to go and handle it himself. But the problem was is that he was the sole emperor. And he didn't want to leave the Empire unsupervised. So he decided to forgo what his predecessors did, you know, naming someone outside of his bloodline, going on a uh, meritocracy and adopting someone as your own son, and instead named his own son as co-emperor, Joaquin Phoenix, also known as Commodus. And of course, we know how Dumbledore felt about Joaquin Phoenix. And Commodus? Commodus is not a moral man. You have known that since you were young. But despite that, he named him co-emperor. Now, maybe Marcus was thinking that the stoic education he gave Commodus would eventually lead him to become an emperor like himself. Maybe he thought that once Commodus had some responsibilities, he would flourish and become the man that the empire needed. So Marcus invested Commodus with full imperial titles and then set out to campaign against the Germans. I know, it's shocking that he didn't name Russell Crowe as emperor, right? So Aurelius decided to head out to the Danube and then said, At my signal, unleash hell. Or something like that. And they kind of did. The campaign was immensely successful to begin with. And actually, it was looking like he was going to add a major territory to the empire. But it all fell apart when Aurelius caught the plague and died in 180. Rather than completing the task... The new sole emperor, Commodus, abandoned the issue and left an open problem that would harass Rome until the fall of the empire. And now, one of the most worthless emperors in Roman history had near total power. And sometime around this period, a group of Britons crossed the wall that divided the barbarians from the Romano-British and killed the general and his troops. This was almost certainly one of the unknown governors from this period. Now, I probably should mention the fact that while we don't know all of the names of the governors, such as that governor who died, we do know a few of them from this period. Well, we know their names. And sometimes we know when they were assigned and when they either died or were recalled. But I haven't been mentioning them because that's about all we know. And how boring would this podcast be if I just sat here reciting names? So, the Britons went and killed an unknown general who was probably a governor, and a bunch of his troops. But the more interesting question here is, which wall did the Britons cross? My guess is that it was Hadrian's Wall, just from the context of the record. But what if it was the Antonine Wall? That would indicate that there were Roman operations north of Hadrian's Wall, though unsuccessful, for nearly 20 years following the abandonment of the Antonine Wall. That would be a pretty neat discovery. And considering the fact that Rome held some forts to the north until around this period in time, it isn't impossible. But I think it's still pretty unlikely. Chances are the northerners cross Hadrian's Wall and then kill the governor and probably his guard, probably not a whole legion. But it's still fun to think about. Regardless, we've got some Brits climbing the wall, cutting down a general and his troops, and then scampering back across the wall. Strong work, fellas. And Commodus reacted to this by sending a new governor to Britannia. But from what I can tell, he didn't accomplish much, and the region was still a thorn in the side of Rome. Like Nero, the emperor started his reign under moderating influences. And perhaps it was that influence that led to the assignment of an ineffective governor. 
Now, there must have been pretty consistent unrest in and around Roman Britannia at this time. This is because while only a few urban areas had walls earlier in its history, and walled towns weren't exactly common in Roman-occupied territories, though there were exceptions such as Winchester, Silchester, and Chichester, um, but those were probably special dispensations that were granted to Cogidubnus's, um client kingdom. But in general, this wasn't common, and yet now there was this sudden widespread appearance of walls during this period. Now, the significance of this requires some explanation. The issue here is that you have to have imperial permission to build a wall. After all, the Romans weren't crazy about creating strong points in occupied territory that the legions would have to go in and retake if the locals get rowdy. And yet here you have a bunch of walls being thrown up. And it doesn't seem to have been a matter of differentiating by size. It wasn't like only municipiums and up could build walls. Everybody was building a wall, regardless of the size or prestige of the population. Something must have happened to make this both desirable and also permissible. It's conceivable that Commodus was just inept and allowed the Romano-British to do whatever they wanted. But chances are that this was in reaction to a growing problem that the Romans simply couldn't control at the time, due to the many other problems that were happening within the empire. So Lincoln, Verulamium, you know, a large number of villages and towns were now building defenses. This might have been due to fear that there could be a repeat of Boudicca's War, but that seems a little late to the game. I mean, Boudicca's War was like 120 years ago. For my money, I guess that Rome was losing its grip on Britannia, and the legions just couldn't effectively keep the Romanized British safe from the rebellious native population. And that could have been helped by the fact that the legions under the reign of Commodus were rebellious themselves. Just the whole region was ready for war. Now this was due to the fact that while he started out under moderating influences, Commodus soon found himself in conflict with the Senate, and his behavior started to become increasingly erratic and, frankly, a little bit tyrannical. And it isn't impossible for legions to play emperor-maker. The legions, from the common soldier to the officers, had a strong code of ethics, honor, and loyalty, and everything held together just fine so long as the emperor maintained the respect of the legions. But you had quite a problem on your hands if you had a weak, neglectful, or inept emperor in Rome. The likelihood of rebellion became even more significant as the empire continued because many of the legions were stationed in provinces for long periods of time. And I'm not talking about, like, a couple years. We're talking centuries. And they were recruiting local population. So the ties to Rome were really weakening. This was a professional army that was staffed by non-Romans, and yet they were expected to be loyal to the emperor of Rome. It's not going to work out in the long run. And the British army had backed its own candidates in the past, such as the year of the four emperors. So what did Commodus do to irritate the legions of Britannia? Well, to begin with, he appointed a Praetorian prefect named Perennis in 182, and then just left most of the empire in his hands and went off to do whatever Commodus felt like he wanted to do on that particular day. And so Perennis started governing, and he made a number of rulings and pronouncements that drove the British army up the wall. And then he replaced the governor of Britannia with Ulpius Marcellus. Now here's a governor who's earned having his name mentioned in the podcast. 
Marcellus was known for his incorruptibility, but also for his extreme adherence to discipline. This guy didn't mess around. So now the army in Britannia was hitting a boiling point. We don't know how much of a role Marcellus played, but we know that the men absolutely hated him. There are leaders who inspire men to do incredible things out of respect and affection. Marcellus was not one of those men. He would force action through brute force and brutal discipline. Now, Marcellus was well known as a capable military leader, but the problem is, is that anyone who has studied leadership knows that success is not enough. Getting a paycheck isn't enough. You need to actually possess the qualities of leadership if you want to lead a group of people. So Marcellus was there, and Commodus authorized a punitive campaign against the rebelling Britons. This sort of brutality is exactly what Marcellus excelled at, and he exacted a terrible vengeance upon the rebelling tribes. While this campaign was certainly in southern Scotland, there's also a good chance that Marcellus operated north of the Antonine Wall as well. And it didn't take long for Marcellus to start winning victories. In 184, which is just after the campaign started, there were coins that were struck commemorating the legion's victories. And while campaigning continued until 185, Commodus, being Commodus, had already claimed the title of Britannicus the year before. But of course, this wasn't really much of a conquering, and Commodus wasn't much of a Britannicus. In fact, despite the successful campaign in the north, the forts at Birrens, Newstead, Risingham, Capuc, and High Rochester, which had all been held since the abandonment of the Antonine Wall, were lost. This really wasn't a successful campaign. At most, it was just a brutal reaction to the rebellion. And in the end, despite Marcellus's successes in battle, his behavior towards his officers was judged to be intolerable. And following his victory, Marcellus was recalled to Rome and accused of treason, quite possibly as a result of his officers' outright hatred of him. We don't know what the treason was. Maybe it was allowing towns to fortify themselves. Or maybe it was just a trumped-up charge. But regardless, it was quickly dropped. But nevertheless, the army in Britannia was now spoiling for war. They didn't like the emperor, they didn't like the emperor's stand-in, and they really didn't like their former governor, and they've now had their morale boosted by successfully ousting that governor. And as I said, they really hated the emperor's stand-in, Perennis, and his new laws. So following the ousting of Marcellus, the British army sent 1,500 men to Rome to discuss the issue of Perennis' rule with Commodus in 185. They were probably prepared to discuss it pretty hard. And Commodus dropped Perennis like a hot rock. And now the legions of Britannia knew they were on to something. They had a significant amount of power and knew how to wield it. But that'll have to wait. For now, it's 185 and the Romans have fully pulled back to Hadrian's Wall. The forts to the north have been abandoned, and Commodus was left saying, Am I not Since following that, the Romans were pretty much done with Scotland. Okay, let's stop right there. And before I let you go, I'd like to uh, make a call to action. Actually, wait a minute. If we're doing a call to action, this should sound a little bit better. There we go. So I want to do a call to action. If you like the podcast, if you're a fan of the podcast, 
Can you do me a favor and head over to either iTunes and write a review or recommend it to a friend or both? Ultimately, I just want more listeners. Uh, I like the fact that uh, people are interested in history and I want to spread this as much as I can. Uh, So if you have any friends that you think would be interested uh, or whatever, please, uh, please spread the word. So that is my call to action. And remember... What we do in life... Echoes in eternity. All right, I'll see you next time. Thanks for listening.